0: Uh, This morning, what I want to get into is if you're not familiar with the Bible, we've been in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, since the week after Easter. And in light of the historical moment, the cultural moment that we're in, we just thought, let's just go to the text and, and on some level, work verse by verse and story by story and just reacquaint ourselves with who is this Jesus and what's his invitation and what does it mean to be his people. And we're going to stick to that this summer. I'm still not really sure, I'm, I'm uncomfortable myself, I've never done this professionally before, but where we get to this summer then is the Sermon on the Mount, and Bob uh, just, just read the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and if you're not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, it, it is, I would dare say, uh, the, the greatest expose on the human condition and what goodness involves that's, that's ever been offered. It's also the longest recorded sermon of Jesus, and I think what it really invites us to think about is, is just goodness. Uh, I mean, we could start here. Have you ever, have you ever set out to accomplish something great? Uh, maybe that was a certain score on an ACT. Maybe that was to be the valedictorian. Maybe that was uh, to get into a certain school. Uh, maybe that was to make a team or to be a starter on the team. Maybe there was a particular relationship, quite honestly, that, that you pursued. Maybe you, maybe you were a leader. Uh, of, of an organization, in the government, whatever, and, and you wanted to create the greatest squadron, you wanted to create the greatest office place that, that anybody had ever created. Maybe you started a business. But have you ever set out to create something great and then took it on the nose? Like, you tried to have a great fill in the blank, and then you were confronted with the fact that you're not good enough. You didn't make the team, or you made the team, but, but you're not a starter. You got into college but you got into community college, not, not Yale or Harvard. I mean, you started the business and it's making it kinda, but it's, it's kinda limping. I think part of what the Sermon on the Mount invites us to do, begs us to do is to say, what do we do with that emotion? And it's, it's related, I think, to this other question that, again, I think it's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount and this is like, have you ever, ever looked in the mirror one morning and just honestly wondered to yourself whether or not you even have the capacity to be good? I mean, I know that can get dark, but maybe there was a particular hard night in your marriage. Maybe you're in a season of parenting where you f- feel like you're, you're failing miserably. Maybe you've been through a divorce or a business, went out of business, or, or something developed in a relationship or a friendship. You know that feeling that, which can get too dark, I suppose, too quickly, and I don't expect that we, we've even voiced it very often, but just that sense of, like, can I even be good? I really think that's what Jesus is getting at in, in this sermon. And, and the jumping-off point is what we know as the Beatitudes, starting in Matthew 5, and I just want to read a couple because Bob just did that so well, but Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for, for they will be comforted. Uh, from, a, from a scholarly standpoint, here's the question around the Beatitudes. What's Jesus driving at? Like, what do they mean? And there's a couple dominant schools of thought. The, the first, and I think quite frankly, the most common, the most typical school of thought is that the Beatitudes are, they're Beatitudes. That what Jesus is saying there is, is, is if you want to be blessed, you should mourn. If you want to be blessed, you should be poor of spirit. He, he's, he's telling you something to do. And again, that, that's the majority opinion, best I can tell, based upon commentaries and things like that. But it's not the only one. It's the minority opinion that makes more sense to me, and that's in large part because if you follow the context of Matthew, I think Dallas Willard and others who point out the minority opinion, I think it makes more sense. And the minority opinion would be this, that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's on a hill, this is a very Moses moment, which is a theme Matthew's been developing from the first word, really. But he's standing with this this throng of people. He's looking at this group of people. And guess who they're not? They're not the blue chip athletes. They're not the valedictorians. They're not the religiously pure. They're the cast-offs and the also-rans and the barely-graduated. They're those who have embarrassing stories to tell about their own past. They're the people that their society has already passed by as hopeless. And again, if you followed Matthew, and if you haven't, you can go back and listen to the podcast throughout this, but Matthew's theme has, from the very beginning, has been that part of what Jesus did and part of what got him so in trouble was he brought back the story of a God who invited everybody. He threw wide the doors to the kingdom and said, you you too can live the with God life, which is what the kingdom of God's all about. You too can experience the active presence of God. And he's looking to the most non-qualified people and saying, you you, you can do this. In other words, the the argument would be that when he lists these people in the Beatitudes, he's not praising them for something that they're already doing. He's he's pointing to the absurdity of even you can step into the kingdom now. It's a story that's more about God than it is about them in this instance. But it captures a, a tension that I... I know for me, I'm, I'm confronting more and more like f- f- one of the major things that I've learned from COVID and, and about my leadership and about this culture, quite frankly, that part of the story and part of the story of God has always been the present availability of God to anyone. We, we've talked about this mandorla, which is what we would often call a Venn diagram. Mandorla, I think, I, need, I, just need to, I haven't taken the time to look again, which is lazy, but the middle section if I'm correct, mandorla is the Latin for almond. But we've looked at even ancient iconography that points to the fact that the truth of almost anything is, is almost always found in the overlap. Think of this historical moment. All the cultural narrative is that the right is right, or the left is right. What, what, what if the truth of it is in, in the overlap in some sense? So here's what I think Matthew's doing, is on the one hand he's saying, Everybody's welcome, but then why does he transition to salt and light? What's he saying? What if he's saying, well, you've got a job to do. You made the team, but now you've got a job to do. Cool. High school coaches can appreciate, here's the uniform. Now it's your job to behave in a way that's becoming of being a part of this team. You have a responsibility. You're salt. You're light. For me, this is the tension of this moment and I think what I'm learning from COVID is I've emphasized the availability of God but what if we've on some level failed to emphasize but there's a responsibility that comes with that. Uh, there's a certain type of person we're called to be. There's a certain, part of, certain way of showing up in the world and, and God cares about that as well. Uh, one of the things that captured this for me, this week I was thinking about these things as you do and I remembered a story about my friend, Vern. Some of you will know Vern, others not. He's the first guy I ever worked for in church, and I can, I can say he's the single most talented person I've ever known personally, him and Hopkins. Well, if you don't know Vern, uh, what, what you ought to know is he's the most type A, Enneagram One, perfectionistic person I've ever met. Uh, and, and, and that's mostly a good thing. Uh, but at times, working for him is suffocating. At, at times, the bar's just too high. And as we were part of this young church that was growing faster than anybody could really manage, there, were often, there was often this tension around his need for excellence and the reality that we're humans and sometimes technology doesn't work right and, and not all of us are, quite frankly, as talented as Verne. And I remember uh, there was this one Sunday, and, and things must not have gone all that well, because what I remember is the staff meeting after the Sunday, and I don't remember if feelings were heard and relationships were crossed, but I remember it was, it was Vern taking the moment to tell a story. And the story was at about a time 15 years or so prior to this, when he was a, a junior high pastor at a, at a church called Faith E. that's still this great church in Billings. And, and this was a season, some of you won't even remember this, I'm about to date myself, but this was after hymn books, so you didn't sing the songs by reading from a book, but it was before overhead projection like this. Th- this was the season of overhead projectors, like the original version. Everybody know what I'm talking about, the glass and mirrors and clear plastic that went through the copy machine and oftentimes melted, but if you got lucky, it had the words on it. With me? Even Marley knew what it was last service, and she's a senior, so I figured, everybody know what I'm talking about? Anna, have you ever seen one of those things before? Okay. Oh yeah, so there you go, they still use them. So at this church, and the story Vern was telling was obviously it was somebody's job. You didn't have someone back there running slides like Jack is. You had someone on stage switching out songs and switching out these sheets. Well, sometimes the, the staff would get assigned to do that, and on this particular Sunday, Vern was assigned to do it, and, and he did it, and he did it the way only Vern would. And on the, in the ensuing staff meeting, one of the older staff members was kind of making fun of him for, for being too for perfectionistic. And, you know, Vern's the type where every line would be perfectly level, and every word perfectly centered on the screen, and this staff person was, was kind of ribbing him, as, as happens to people like that, about, you cared too much. And as Vern told this story, he actually started to cry, which could be a form of powering up, but I don't think that's what he was doing. And what he went on to explain was his understanding of God is that God is excellent, and that part of the way that we can, we can worship God then is to bring our excellence. And his argument was we should care about those details. And yes, should there be grace? Of course there should. But we should care about the details. And it was from Vern that I learned that, that part of what a staff should do is eliminate any distraction we can. And in his opinion, an unlevel word or, 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 or an unlevel line or an uncentered word was, was distracting. Now, it's kind of a trivial Illustration, but I really think that's what Jesus is getting at in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, is this both and. You're all welcome, but, but don't think I don't have standards. You're all welcome, but don't think there's not a person for you to be. I'm still haunted by this. We have some similar things. Actually, last service, I was sitting in the front row, and I, it drives me crazy when I little see like little specks of popcorn or something on the carpet, and I bent over. I was sitting in the front row to pick up this little white thing, and then I realized it was a toenail, which was disgusting. <laughs> but see, you didn't have to see it. What if that's what Matthew's doing here? In fact, what if his answer to the question, who can be good, is really what he's driving at? Uh, look again at verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, don't think that I'm here to trivialize holiness, obedience. Now, what's going on here is actually an idiom. Uh, I, we, we use idioms all the time. We're oftentimes subconscious, they're subconscious to us. If if you were to say, I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse and some poor soul a thousand years from now is trying to translate that, they would be really confused because they would think that there are circumstances in which Americans living in Helena in 2021 eat horse. It's similar to what's going on here. To abolish the law is actually to, to interpret it poorly, to live it out wrong, and to fulfill the law is to, fill it out, to, to, to live it out correctly, to, to teach it in the correct manner. So, so make no bones about it. Jesus is not willy-nilly just showing up and going, hey, I'm going to die on the cross and you're all rescued. He's actually very much saying that and he's saying there's a standard. That there, There's obedience. There's a right way to do this and a wrong. And then, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry, but <coughs> in verse 20, this is, in my opinion, in, in Dallas's opinion, the crux of the entire sermon. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, and that word righteousness really just means goodness, Unless your goodness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, these are the moments where you start realizing what got Jesus killed because he's essentially putting his arm around Aaron Rodgers and going, man, I sure hope you can throw a football better than him because you have to if you're going to be any good. Like, he's throwing his arm around world-class musicians and saying, they're not good at this at all. If you're going to do this, you better be better than them. Which raises the question then, what's the, what's the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees that Jesus takes exception to? And, and how is it that he's saying that, that the goodness he wants to bring exceeds that of them, the, the, the very best of his religious culture? Well, that's where he starts breaking it down. And uh, the, the first section and Dallas would say that they're chronological for a reason, that if we can get through the first few, then most of life is kind of dealt with. Anger this week. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, Jesus and sex, which that should be fun. I'm sure it'll be lots of people here next week. And then he gets into the words we use. So you can see he's not really touching on any of this stuff we struggle with. But here we go. He gets into anger first. You've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. So notice what he's saying is their standard is just don't murder. As long as you do that, you're, you're good. But I say to you, that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment, and if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council, and if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. So what's the righteous of scribes and Pharisees? Well, it's, it's external, it's, it's don't murder. And this is where we get into like, Jesus is not easy, because what's he doing with the bar? Suddenly he's saying, no, no, actually to avoid murder, it's really not that good of a litmus test for where your heart's at. Where's, where's he putting the bar? He's putting it at anger. What is anger? Well, I love Matthew, or excuse me, Dallas Willard's definition. He says anger is simply the result of a thwarted will, of an interrupted desire, which means it, it means it's inherently human, doesn't it? It also means that those of us wired more like Vern are gonna. That's why we live in the angry quadrant more, because we, we have stuff that we that w- we have different lenses that we see life through. What is Jesus saying? Is he saying you should never get angry? Well, that, that to me would um, trivialize the fact that Jesus came as human. Jesus himself, we see in the story, often got angry. So what is he doing? Well, notice he talks about what do we resort to in that anger. Do you call him a fool? Do you call him raka? And we could spend some time on the specificity of his language. Uh, the, the picture, I have it drawn in the margin of my, my copy of The Divine Conspiracy, which is Willard's kind of opus It's uh, one of the ways to translate it is just hawk a loogie. Like that's what he's saying is like in your anger, if you're not careful, your heart's desire is to just hawk a loogie on people. Dallas's word for this is contempt, that what Jesus is really warning us about is that anger is human, but kingdom work is to make sure that said anger doesn't manifest into a full-fledged plant Called contempt, and we—I think I would hope we can all see this. Whether it's someone pulling out in front of you, or someone who disappoints you, or, or someone that you're annoyed by, it's very easy to allow anger to become this thing where you're actually questioning their very value as a as a human. And here again, quite honestly, I, I think we're at the intersection of our historical moment, our cultural moment. Think about the culture that we've lived in for the last 18 months the political conversations, the social media conversations. I would dare say that not only have we endorsed contempt, haven't we culturally said that if you don't have contempt against, for the right things, you're actually doing it wrong. You, you're bad if you fail to have contempt for the right things. The conservative right, it's got a long list of things that you're clearly bad if you don't have contempt towards them. And to be fair, the progressive left is playing the same game, aren't they? They each have their own pet lists, the intersection of which, I would argue, has truth in it. But the progressive left also has a long list of things, and, and, and you're not you're, 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 you're bad if you don't have contempt towards those things. This is, again, for me, and I, I feel like within that confused but paying attention kind of heart that we've been talking about since Christmas, what's starting to coalesce for me a little bit is this realization of, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not called to be progressive Christians. I don't think we're called to be conservative Christians. And I know for as long as I get to lead, we're not trying to be a progressive church and we're not trying to be a conservative church. It's a reminder, we're trying to follow Jesus. And quite frankly, either one of those options is far easier. Because in those options, you're good if you just have contempt to the right things. But in the Jesus option, what's he really driving at? What's the heart behind this? Well, he illustrates that, I think, when he tells a story about a guy and a gal who saved a bunch of money. They wanted to go to the Super Bowl. After years of saving for the Super Bowl, they finally made it there, only they're not going to the Super Bowl. Their Super Bowl was to go to the temple. And there's reason to believe that for some people, it would have been the result of a lifetime of earning to make it there once. We made the long trip from Nazareth, from somewhere in the Galilee down to the temple kickoff's just about to happen and they remember a person with whom there's contempt involved in the relationship and before kickoff even occurs before they've even offered anything at the temple they get up from their spot and they do the multi-walk multi-day journey back home to deal with their contempt what's Jesus doing there? of course he's not talking about a Super Bowl he's talking about the temple what's he doing there? Again, why did Jesus get killed by religious people? Well, part of what he did was he said that person in that conflict actually has more value than that religious experience. What's the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees? Well, as best I can tell, and again, I'm certainly indebted to Dallas Willard, Pharisaic righteousness, Pharisaic goodness, it's about appearance. And I catch this in my language all the time. It's about looking good. It's about appearing good. Therefore, we don't murder, which most of us will accomplish, except for some of you who are in a season of parenting where you're not so sure. (laughs) What's the righteousness of Jesus? It's internal. It's it's, it's not behavior modification. It's heart transformation. And listen, I'm not for a second saying I've arrived. I, I struggle with this as much as anybody in this room, but there is this reminder that the goodness of Jesus transcends what's external and it rewires us from the inside out. What does it look like then to transcend our own cultural conversation? To to, to not say, I mean, because there's lots of language we would use, we would say things like the end justifies the means, two wrongs make a right. What if what culture needs now, and I, I, I believe this with everything in me and I don't even know if it's gonna work, But what if what culture needs right now are communities of people who buy into the fact that neither side's ideology represents the heart of Jesus, that both sides at times are co-opting Jesus' kingdom heart, and the hope of the future rests on some people. And that doesn't mean they are politically unengaged. It doesn't mean we don't vote. It doesn't mean we don't have affiliation with party. But some people who recognize that the progressive platform or the conservative platform, neither one of them are the kingdom platform. What does it look like to be a people who who, who go, I'm gonna spend the rest of my life, not overnight, but day by day, inviting God to form and shape me into the right kind of person from the inside out. I remember when I was doing youth ministry, Some of the most formative moments in students' lives, especially athletes, were when they blew a knee. I remember one kid, Simon, blew his knee, and it was the best thing that ever happened to him. He was an incredible hockey player, and suddenly it was gone. Some kids got cut from teams. And that's just using athletic metaphors, but I wonder if those moments where we fail to accomplish something great when we make the team but we don't start, when we don't get into the school, are these beautiful reminders that we're not called to be great at basketball. It doesn't mean we can't pursue it. But we're called to be great on the inside. And those are very distinct things. What does it look like to go, to be a Christian is not just something I drift into. Uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I, again, my opinion is that this cultural moment doesn't allow for sloppy Christianity to work. Like in the absence of intentional spiritual disciplines that form and shape us more and more into Christ's image, it seems clear to me which way we'll drift. What are the practices, the moments where you show up every day and every week, and, and, and the baseline prayer is God shape me into your kind of kingdom person. This is what Jesus is getting at. This is what we're gonna spend the summer doing, but it's a reminder of Dallas Willard's, one of my favorite things from him is where he says, uh, grace It's opposed to earning, not to effort. Like God will do some of it for us, but remember, even the Apostle Paul said things like, I beat my body and make it my slave. Now, does that mean he's masochistic? Of course not. He says, I work out my salvation. It's this understanding that's not just our cultural moment, it's every cultural moment that makes it incredibly difficult to say, murder? That's like a a subset of something much more base. It's, 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 It's on the periphery of something much more important, and that's this inherent value for people, and thus managing my anger in a way that values people. Listen, if there's something we can do to help you form practices, I can't think of a a walk or a lunch meeting that anybody on staff would enjoy more than to sit across from someone who's trying to form practices to intentionally become what they believe. And if you walked in the door this morning and you're a Christ follower, I I guess my my genuine hope and more and more my prayer is, is that this is a space that helps you decide whether or not this is an identity that you're committed to. This is a God you want to follow. You know there's something that happens in the beatitudes and I I didn't even put it on the screen but they start blessed are the poor blessed are those who mourn they end blessed are you the tone changes and what some commentators think is that Jesus is casting a wide net through the beginning of the beatitudes and in the very end he's looking at his disciples and more or less saying this is hard blessed are you when, when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evils against you on my account, suddenly he's looking at them going, don't think this will be easy. This could cost you everything. If you're someone who walked in the door and you're kind of just nominal in your faith, my, my heart isn't to judge you, you know, but to create space where you get to decide is, is being good by Jesus' standard a more worthwhile pursuit than a state championship? than a team, than, than a grade, than a relationship, than getting a certain kind of look when you walk down the street. And for those of you that, quite frankly, you wouldn't have called yourself a Christian when you walked in the door and you might not when you leave, that's okay too because we've spent 12 years trying to create space for you. But I do feel like our, our opportunity is, is to connect you to a narrative that's different than the one that you'll hear out there. And to recognize this, this Jesus welcomes everybody. And yet the welcome costs you everything. So we're going to create a few things that will just help you kind of think this through. And if you want to start following Jesus, that's as simple as telling that. But there's also some really tactile things we're going to do. So we're going to do a communion. And you can use that however you want. And then if you want to get together this week and talk baptism, it's been a tumultuous year. We would, we would love to talk through that with you as well. God, thanks. God, thanks that, that Jesus is, is more than an idea and more than a philosophy and more than an ideology, but that he's this befuddling, kind of hard to hold onto person. And Jesus thinks that his third way is as relevant today in our cultural moment as it's ever been. And God, my, my sincere prayer would be that our future together uh, holds intention, the opportunity we have to make Jesus as available as possible to as many people as possible and the responsibility that we have uh, to become little Jesuses in our world. We love you, God. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.